So tonight we are going to be um, continuing our series, Dawn of a Kingdom, looking at the book of, of 1 Samuel together. Uh, this is part four of the series so far. And uh, in the weeks we've had so far, we've been looking at and getting to know some of the people in the story and getting familiar, hopefully, with some of their background, who they are and what's going on. Some of the names that uh, hopefully you are beginning to get a grip of so far, people like Elkanah, the husband, uh, who had two wives. He had first Hannah, um, who was unable to bear children, so then married Peninnah, who did have some children, um, but who was pretty horrible to Hannah and was mocking to her, um, of her, you know, unable to have children. Um, then we met Eli, the priest, who did not exactly cover himself in glory when he accused Hannah of being a drunkard, when actually she was just praying desperately to God. Um, and then we hear the answer to Hannah's prayer, and uh, we get introduced to the little boy Samuel, who is born. God provides in a miraculous way and gives her the son or the child that she has longed for. And so last week, we then heard from B of what Hannah's response was to that gift, um, and that actually it was one of total worship and praise. But it wasn't just for the gift itself, it wasn't just for that specific thing, though she did you know, touch on that and thank God for that. She went much further than that, and, and B pointed out that you know, 90% of what she was singing about was actually just praise to God in, in general for his sovereignty and his might and his strength, not because she had been given a son, uh, which is a huge challenge and uh, very provoking to us, I think, and uh, we left it last week. Uh, Samuel had been born and he'd been given to the Lord. And verse 11 in chapter 2 last week was when Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And that's basically where we're going to pick up tonight. We're going to start in verse 12. And we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. So it is a little bit of a long passage. So bear with it, but we'll, we'll work our way through it. And then uh, draw out a few things from there across the evening. So the words will be up on the screen behind me if you haven't got a Bible with you. But if you do, flick to uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And as I say, we'll read until the end of the chapter. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say no. You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. 
And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Having read all of that, and there's a lot of it, I think it's safe to say it's not gone that well for Eli and his boys. The first sentence that we read you know when you hear, have you ever heard of a feedback sandwich? Where, you know, you say something encouraging to someone first, then you give them some constructive criticism, a bit of feedback in the middle, and then you say something encouraging at the end as well to sort of lighten the burden or the load a little bit. Not here. Right at the beginning, sons of Eli were worthless men. I mean, it's a pretty damning report on them. And it doesn't get much better. Um, we then find out that the, the sons of Eli are going to die on the same day as a sign of God's judgment 
uh, upon Eli and his family. So it's not looking good for any of them, and certainly not um, a very uplifting story for a Sunday night, perhaps. Uh, so, you know, why, why am I talking on it at all? And you might think, well, there's still time on the clock, Chris. You can just skip on to chapter three. We'll leave this bit for another day. Um, but I think there is some value in looking at stories like this, because even if people like Hophni, Phineas, and Eli don't serve as a positive role model for us, even if we're not going to try and mimic them or their behavior, they do serve as a very powerful challenge to our characters and the way that we're living our lives and uh, that's what this whole story, I think, is about, is about how we live a life that honors God. How do we live a life um, for him? These guys don't get anywhere close, really. Um, and so we're going to look at them, see why they don't, um, and see how that can challenge us and speak to us in 21st century Nottingham. So first, let's look at the sons, Hophni and Phineas, great names, I'm sure you'll agree, um, from verses 12 to 17, we read that they were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. And uh, it says that the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a fork in his hand. He thrust it into the pan or kettle and basically bring up whatever he could on that. And uh, that's what they uh, kept for the priests. Um, so they're already abusing their position. This is what they were doing to all the people who came from Israel uh, they were already not doing what it says back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. When you cross-reference it with what was supposed to happen with the practice of doing this stuff, the process of giving an offering to the Lord. I'm not going to go back and read through it all, but if you were to look, that's not what they're doing here. And yet, it gets even worse for them. We read then in 15 and 16, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man then challenged back and said, No, let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. And again, if you were to cross-reference it with the passages in Exodus and Leviticus that talk about the process of doing these things and the offerings and how it's supposed to work and the bits of meat that are supposed to go where and do what, you'll read that the fat that's referred to here um, was taken from certain internal organs of the animals, and that fat was specifically allocated for God. It was burnt as an offering, and then that, that smell and, and it, the offering that it was was specifically for the Lord and no, and no one else. But that's not what's happening here. And even the Israelites that come, like they know the process. They've done it before. They know how it's supposed to work. They know the law of God. So this guy, you know, in this story, it's like, oh, no, let me do this. Let me do the fat first. And then you guys can take, you know, what's left afterwards, as is the custom. And then Hophni and Phineas, the scoundrels that they are, say no, but not just oh, no, I'm not sure that's the best idea. Let's talk about it. They say, no, I want this now. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to do something about it. They threaten them with violence, with intimidation. And 
the th like, for us, I guess this doesn't like feel like that big of a deal because it, it's so distant for us, isn't it, all of this stuff? And it, it seems so not like how our world, certainly here in England, works, um, that it can seem a bit like, okay, well, so they took the wrong piece of meat, so they burnt it in the wrong order or whatever. But at this time, this would have been scandalous. These, these guys are making a mockery of people's devotion to God, this, this key part of their culture, this key part of their relationship with God. And these guys were totally ruining it, exploiting it, taking advantage of it. And it might not be heartbreaking to us, but it would be super heartbreaking for them. And it's all summed up then in verse 17, where it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So these, these guys, these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they're there in the place of worship, right? They're, they're in the temple of meeting. But they're not living for God, I think it'd be safe to say. And you would never suggest, having read that story, or perhaps, let's say, even if you looked back into the, the Old Testament books and really cross-referenced everything over and over and over and checked everything, after doing all of that, there's no way, I think, you could argue that they were giving it their best shot of living right for God or, or doing right in the eyes of the Israelites. I really don't think you could try maybe and argue, oh, yeah, well, they, they might not have been doing the stuff right, but, but they were there. They were at the place of worship, weren't they? So, you know, it's not all bad. Like, let's give them a bit of slack. Let's give them a bit of a break. I don't think you could believe that because they know exactly what they're doing. They're being horrible to the people of Israel who come to, to, to give offering to the Lord, taking advantage of it. They're not living for God, even though they're there in the room. And it struck me that we might not be all that dissimilar to these guys. When I was reading this, I, at first you sort of pass judgment on them and think, oh man, I can't believe they would do such a thing. Can't believe they'd be like that, you know. Just because they're there, they think they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter how they live their lives or how they treat other people or how they are in the world or anything like that. And I was like, oh, hang on. Like, are we ever a little bit like that? And I, I think the answer is yes, to be honest. I think what I've called this sort of Sunday solution, that we fall into this trap of thinking that just because we're here on a Sunday, we're in the place of worship, like those guys were, and we attend faithfully, and we're, you know, we're sort of doing the stuff on a Sunday as it's sort of roughly supposed to be done. You know, we sing the songs, and we, we do the prayers, and we, we sit nicely and listen, and then we, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, no, like, yeah, we go on a Sunday. But then after that, the rest of our week, the way that we live our lives, the way that we act, the way that we think doesn't really necessarily live for God in the same way. We fall into this trap of thinking that Sunday is the thing, that just because we're here, the rest doesn't matter, that because I'm attending church, because I'm attending the place of worship, like these guys were, they were there, that the rest doesn't matter. But that's not God's intention for church at all. And this, this thing, you know, building this service, the room, you lot, us, like, 
This is how church has become for us in 21st century. This is what it looks like for lots of people. But God's intention for church is much more than just these couple of hours on a Sunday night or a few hours on a Sunday morning. So much more than that. And his design for church was for it to be the people of God, not this event on a Sunday that lasted from seven till nine or or whatever it is. See, God's big plan for making you like Jesus wasn't just getting topped up on a day of the week. God's big plan for making you like Jesus was putting something of him in you so that you become more like him over time, over time, over time, and and helping you and actually having a a to-and-fro relationship with the Lord rather than just coming on a Sunday and getting your bit and thinking, well, I was there, good, I'm a Christian, I'm doing the right stuff, and then carrying on living your life how you want to. Because God's a father, He wants you. He loves you like a child. He loves spending time with you. He loves speaking with you, to you. He he wants you to become familiar with his voice and familiar with his spirit working in you and guiding you and prompting you, convicting you and leading you. He wants you to talk back to him. Like we heard of Hannah, you know, she lays it all out in her first prayer that we hear where Eli thinks she's drunk. She's so desperate in her prayer that she might look, even appear a little bit funny. God wants us to speak to him like that, wants us to engage with him like a person and tell it how it is. Because the thing is, God doesn't just want attendance. He doesn't just want us to be here on a Sunday. He wants relationship See, to live for God, we have to be in relationship with God. It's not living for God isn't being here on a Sunday. I'm not sure it counts for that much of it, to be honest. I think there's so much of our lives. That's where the living for God really happens. This is a helpful part of us being the people together in a corporate sense. But to live for God, we've got to be in relationship with God. We can't just attend stuff and then tick it off our list in the week. And reading this story, I was personally extremely challenged because, as I said, at first, I'm like, half and infinite, chumps. Like, I'm, I'm so, like, not like them. It's such a relief to me that I'm not a priest in Israel like them because they are a disaster. They're making a mockery of God and the people's worship. And I started, like, reflecting it to myself a little bit. And I was like, okay, well, like, what's my life like? And I was like, huh. They worked full-time, I suppose, at the place of worship. Those of you that have just laughed probably already know that I work full-time for the church here. And so I was like, oh, right, okay, that's, that's quite similar, I suppose. I, I guess you could call this a place of worship, and I work here full-time. I was like, mm, okay. I was like, all right, all right maybe that, that's not so bad. And I was like, okay, these guys, I suppose, you know, they, they help facilitate the people of God's you know, devotion and, and worship to God you know, in, in helping them with the offerings and the sacrifice and things like that. And I was like... Do I do that? Yeah, I guess I kind of do that as well. I suppose I lead worship. I suppose that helps like, facilitate people's worship of God. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, me, Hophni, and Phineas, we're like three peas in a pod. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, it, it struck me. I was like, man, you know, you read these old stories and you think, oh, we're so distant. We're so far removed from them. And it totally nailed me. I was like, man, I'm about as close to them as I could get, probably in terms of what my life looks like. And I think, honestly, this is a real battle for me because it's very easy for me 
to sort of feel like, well, I'm actually at church like six days a week, so, man, of course my relationship with God is like on fire all the time because I'm just here, and that's where the Lord is, right? So me and God are just like this. Um, and I, I know for me it is actually it's a daily battle to not rely on that element and just think, well, I'm getting closer to God because I'm spending another day with him in the church office, which when you say it like that, sounds absurd, right? That that would actually do anything for my engagement with the Lord necessarily. But for me, it's a very, a very real challenge. Now, I appreciate that most of you do not work full-time for the church. So you might think, whew, what a relief. But you're in this as bad as I am. Um, because our culture, the consumer culture that we live in, makes this very difficult for us as well. Because like these guys, Hoffney and Phineas, who, you know, they're there, and then they just sort of take from it what they want, when they want it. They take from the meat and the offering, the stuff that they would like, when they want it. They even intimidate people to get it. I'm not saying that you're intimidating people to get what you want, but I think it's very easy for us to do the same thing when we attend the place of worship, that we come for a couple of hours and just expect to get the bits that we want from it or we know that there's this thing going on in our life and so the things that I need have to you know, meet that need. I need this because it's going to fix that and I don't want the other things and I don't really want this and I don't want to see those people. I don't have to interact and do this stuff. It's very easy for us to fall into that trap, I think, just because that's sort of the world that we live in. And I think that's also the easier way of doing the Christian life. It's much easier just to attend the stuff than it is to live out your faith. But living the easier life is never going to change the world. You're never going to change the world just by attending an event, just by being at the thing. That's never going to change anything out there if you just come for this, and then as soon as you leave, it's exactly the same. You're never going to see your best friend's life totally transformed. Their destiny changed in a moment if all you ever do is just attend a thing on a Sunday. What's going to change that for them is them just observing that the way you live your life is totally, radically different to theirs. The way that you think about your decisions is totally different to theirs. Oh, and it just so happens that you go to this thing on a Sunday that they are familiar with. If anything, that's a thing that's going to be less powerful because they already kind of know what church is or they have an idea in their mind. What's really going to change the world is us living out faith in a way that is radically different to the world around us, not just being at an event for a couple of hours on a Sunday. We're called to much more than just attending something. We're called to much more than just being somewhere. We're called to live like Jesus, to be him to the world around us. He didn't just go to stuff and then sort of shy away from it the rest of the time. I mean, he lived a life, didn't he? That's what we're supposed to be like. And you see, you know, in this whole passage, there's a couple of moments where Samuel is then referred to, which I think is, well, it's a little bit cruel on the Eli and his priest. It's just like, these guys are jokers. And Samuel's just a little boy. He's doing it so well at the moment. Um, but, you know, in verse 18 and 21, we read that Samuel was ministering to the Lord and he grew in the presence of the Lord. And I just think that even is quite poignant that, you know, he's a boy who's not just like living a life for God and trying to do things, but he's living a life with God. He's in his presence. 
And that's what it's about, right? To be with him and to become more like him, like him by being around him. Okay, so Eli's sons, so far not doing so good, but certainly very helpful for us to, to really stop for a moment and think, oh, actually, are we more like them than we think? Are we falling into traps that we're, we're oblivious to? Perhaps. It then goes on to speak of Eli, um, who, as I said earlier, has already not, he's not looked great in our story um, when he accused Hannah of being a drunkard. So he comes up again, and you think, oh, yes, like he's really going to redeem himself. Eli is going to be the man. Um, he's not. I'll tell you that now. Um, he, he's hearing everything that his sons are doing, and he confronts them on it. He, he speaks to them, <clears throat> and he says... Why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the, of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? He tries to talk to them. They just don't listen. And Eli knows how serious it is as well. That, that last question that he asks, you know, that if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against God, who can intercede for him? Like, whoa, what happens then? He knows that this is a big problem. He knows that for a priest to sin is almost of like a different order because these are the chosen people to be the mediators between man and God at this time in history. So he knows for them to mess up and go wrong is of another, another league entirely. And you're very tempted at this point to sympathize with Eli. Um, he's had a go, I suppose. You know, the, the dad stepped in and he tries to confront them on it. And we all know probably that... that Kids don't always listen to their parents when they're trying to you know, teach them things and advise them on how to live their lives. And so you, know, you, you hear that and you think, oh, Eli, I feel for you, man. Like, good effort, but sometimes kids will be kids and they'll ignore you anyway. Which was certainly my reaction. I was like, oh, at least you tried. But as you read on in our passage, when the messenger of the Lord speaks to Eli, God says to him in verse 29... Why then do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering? And that yourselves is a very key word because it's inclusive of Eli. Why are you fattening yourselves, you and your sons, together? Why are you being part of this? Why are you in on this? So at first, it looks like Eli is trying to play the hero card and trying to step in and trying to solve the problem and trying to help them. But in the end, he's just reaping the benefits in the same way and is just honoring his sons nonetheless because he wants the food as much as they do, he wants the pieces as much as they do. So he sort of tries, but it's so lackluster, really. Eli knew what was happening. He said a few words, but still reaped the rewards and let his sons continue in the same practice. He saw the sin, he knew the problem, and he doesn't do anything about it. The commentator Michael Eaton says, 
Eli had apparently handed over much of his work to his sons. He would hear of the corruption of the worship at Shiloh, but would do little about it. He would complain to his sons, but would take no action. His sin was that of passivity. Again, your first reaction is to pass judgment on him and think, oh, fool, like, what a bad guy. He didn't really do anything about it. But again, I think in reality, this sort of situation could be as true for me, for you now, as it was for him back then. I wonder if you see something of yourself in Eli here, in, in his attempt but failing to deal with the sin. Because I know I certainly do. Because I've lived it. I have, I have lived this, and I've had it in my life myself, where I've talked to myself and then really not committed to actually following through with anything. You know, over the last sort of five, six, seven years of my life, becoming a young man and, and growing in Jesus, I, so many times I can think of where I know there's been a sin in my life, and I know that it's been problematic to my relationship with other people, but more importantly, my relationship with God. And I sort of try and like say, why are you doing this? But that's about as far as it goes. And I don't really, I don't do anything about it. I have a word, but I don't actually take any action. My best efforts are half-hearted. My worst efforts, they're non-existent at all when it comes to sin. And I, I was reminded of that verse that you might be familiar with in um, one of the letters of Corinthians where you know, we're instructed to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And it just sort of struck me that it doesn't say, you know, take every thought and put it on the naughty step for 10 minutes time out and then welcome it back and see if you can work on it. <laughs> it's like, no, just take it prisoner completely. Cut it off right then, ruthless. And the same should be said of our reaction to sin. But I think we're probably like Eli a lot of the time, aren't we? And I know this is, I know this is something we all experience because we're all human. See, our, our humanity sort of draws us towards this disregard, this carelessness for sin. But our eternity and our, what we're destined for, what we're being changed into, makes us more and more like Christ, that we can't stand sin, that we're becoming more and more righteous. And so we're stuck in the middle. You know, we're in the world, we're not of the world. So we're always going to have this sort of part of us, our human side is like, oh, I don't really care about sin. But the part of us that's becoming more and more like Christ every single day hates it, wants to deal with it. I just think it's such an incredible challenge reading Eli's account here. And so good for us to ask ourselves, is there sin that we're not dealing with in our lives that we can see, that we can observe, that we even speak to? We speak to ourselves sometimes, give ourselves a pep talk. Oh, I know you need to deal with this, deal with this. And you don't do anything about it. Perhaps even tonight, even as I'm saying this, you're like, oh, how did he know? I don't. God does. But it's in the Bible. So God might just be speaking to you tonight about something that's in your life. And you know for a while that you've wanted to deal with it. And all of a sudden you think, oh, yeah, I do. I want to do something about this rather than just keep talking to myself about it. Okay, so Eli's sons, Eli, dishonor God. They're not doing so good. <clears throat> 
doesn't end well for them. A messenger of the Lord comes, and God speaks judgment over his whole family, his whole house for future generations. Ah, where once God was saying to him that the house of Eli would pass in and out before him forever. Now in verse 32, we read, there shall not be an old man in your house forever. So no one's going to grow old. They're going to die young. And at this, in this time in history, like, the, the heritage of your family was a huge deal. So this is, this is the judgment of God coming to Eli's family in a big way. And the sign that this is all going to happen to Eli uh, is that both of his sons are going to die on the same day. We go, oh man, that's pretty horrible. The righteous judgment of God against sin comes to this family, comes to these men who are supposed to be of the highest caliber, supposed to be the chosen people for God. But then God in his final word to Eli, and what the, that he says when that messenger comes, is a promise. In verse 35, he says he's going to raise up for himself a faithful priest. Now, what the commentators agree that, that that's referring to uh, a chap called Zadok, which is another very strong name, um, who's actually going to be the priesthood uh, under King David. <clears throat> but unsurprisingly, it's also a more profound promise than that. See, the sin of Hophni and Phinehas and the passivity of Eli rightly brings judgment on his house, his family, forever. And it'd be right that we fear the same thing, that our sin would bring judgment upon us forever. That's the way that it should work. And Eli gets it when he asks that question. If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And he knows then that the answer is no one. There is no one who can intercede between man and God. Not then. But now, things are totally different. We have a different answer to that question. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is right that our sin bring about judgment and death. That is the right cause and sequence of events. Someone had to die for our sin, for my sin. The thing is, it just wasn't supposed to be me. It was going to be Jesus. The judgment of God against the sin of all mankind was poured out on his son, Jesus. He interceded for us in answer to Eli's question. He intercedes for us even now. He offers mercy to us as a gift. He offers grace in abundance, more than we even realize that we need. And the thing is, after tonight, after reading a story like this, far too easy to leave and think, right, well, I don't want to be like Hophni and Phinehas, and I don't want to be like Eli, so 
Yeah, so Chris said that they're not doing so good. So I'll go home. I'm going to read my Bible every single day. I'm going to pray loads for God to help me in this area. I'm going to make myself accountable to my friends about sin. I'm going to put all these things in place so that I don't do this, I don't do that. I'm going to put all these things in place so that I do do this and do do that. Problem is, if you start doing that, you're just falling into legalism all over again. That's not the solution to this stuff. The lesson tonight isn't to look at these men and to try harder The lesson tonight is to look at that man, Jesus, and receive the free gift of mercy. Receive the free gift of grace. That means he has achieved the life that honors God that you will never be able to. He has already done everything of merit. That means when God judges you now, he says, you are worthy. So the lesson tonight isn't to try and live a different life that fixes all of these issues. It's just to receive everything that Jesus has already offered to you. The commentator David Sumara says this of Eli's question, that it has a deeper implication in the framework of salvation history. Since every human being is a sinner and sins against the Lord, does not Eli's rhetorical questions suggest that there is no hope of sinners being interceded for? But Job did not give up seeking a mediator between himself and God when he said, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Paul's conviction is that Job's question was answered in Jesus. Rosie, do you want to come up with the band. See, Jesus has already done everything that's required of you to be pleasing to God. So you don't go home and try and please God more. We simply acknowledge our Savior and hopefully just get a greater realization of what he's already done for you. That is all on his merit, not on yours. But perhaps you have been sucked into the trap of thinking that attending church is the thing and that that's making you a better Christian. Though there is good things about being here on a Sunday together. You you just feel actually, no, I feel like I've been coasting for too long on just attending. Maybe God's just saying, no, I I just want you to come to me. Because I want to know you more. I want you to know me more. I believe tonight he wants to draw you in. I I believe that. That he wants to say, look, just come. Come to me. I want to wrap you up in my arms. Just be with me. You don't have to do anything. Just be with me. Perhaps even like Eli, you can see the sin in front of you, but you've not done anything about it yet, and you've sort of maybe had a word with yourself, but you've not committed to anything. Maybe tonight God's just highlighting something to you and saying, Hey, let's do something about that. But not, hey, you, just can you fix that? Try harder, be better. He's saying, look, just, just come to me. Look, I can help you. I can help you. There's, there's grace for all that you've done. Grace for all the things that you will do. Just come and spend some time with me and I'll help change you. But above all else this evening, remember that you know, where we read that Hophni and Phineas were worthless men. You've been deemed worthy because of Christ. Because of what he's done. He's taken the judgment that you should have received. 
that there is mercy available to you. There is grace available to you. And we now have an answer to Eli's question. You know, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Jesus can. And he does for you and for me.